Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayome Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayome Azikawe. Today is Saturday, October the 22nd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Let's thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the escalating conflict between the Russian Federation and Ukraine, uh, where uh, evacuations are taking place in the Kherson region, along uh, with attacks on both sides of the Ukrainian and Russian borders. The 20th Congress of the Communist Party of China has issued a statement on the outcomes of its deliberations. We'll have details on that as well. Peace talks between the Ethiopian government and the TPLF rebels are scheduled to begin next week in the Republic of South Africa. And demonstrations have already begun in the Republic of Sudan against the first anniversary of the most recent military coup. In the second hour, we review the recent state uh, visit uh, by the leader the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic in the Western Sahara to uh, the Republic of South Africa. Finally, uh, we listen uh, to the most recent briefing of the African section of the World Health Organization on the current status of the continent of Africa. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned, and uh, we're going to take our musical interlude uh, with the TPOK Jazz Orchestra. From uh, the album, uh, which uh, features Jolie Detta, let's listen in. Thank you. 
Ndenge nini yomu vali mbimba Ulinga tangu rusu kwenye kutela manaveni kazavu Kote kisila kangai bulingu Aloke ngaya wanapoto na malili Tangu ungana za ukanisake yoza na musala Porke yoza inaveni kazavu Kwa mwasi yonso soka za koleka Atala nai Laila Ukangu sakangatu Na ibila kayo ndenge wanate Nepaka kiozaka timini Tangu utoka na seminer na maini Laini Bungu sikoyo Bakuma koloba nangate Laila kuma champion Jumbo utoka timini Jumbo utoka kupanga kutala miswa basi Kusura wame na mwasi Laini Sepako Ah Semana 
And uh, that was uh, the Pan-African classic musical sound of the TPOK Jazz Orchestra on two tracks uh, featuring the vocals of Jolie uh, Detta. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Today is Saturday, October 22nd, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Now, the number of people wounded in the shelling by the Ukrainian armed forces on the town of Shevbenkino, of Belgorod region, has risen to 12, while two civilians were killed. Vladimir Okonnikov, uh, health minister of the Belgorod region, wrote on his Telegram channel earlier today. <clears throat> today, as a result of the shelling of the town of Shevokenko, 14 people were affected, uh, sadly, Two of them have died uh, before ambulances arrived. Uh, They are a man and a 14-year-old child, he wrote. He added that five people were hospitalized. Uh, Four of them are in critical condition. Two people have been killed in Shevinkino, Belgorod region, as a result of the shelling of the town by the Ukrainian armed forces. Governor of the Belgorod region, uh, via Sheslov Gladov, wrote on his Telegram channel earlier today, According to verified information from the emergencies ministry, uh, two civilians were killed, he wrote. Earlier, uh, Gladkov uh, reported that 11 people were wounded in the shelling of Chef Bekino on Saturday, and four of them were in a serious condition. Gladkov added that nearly 15,000 people were cut off from energy supplies after the shelling. We come up with the detailed figures, 11 people, four of them are in a critical condition, he said. Everyone was rushed to a local hospital where they are rendered uh, to the necessary military aid. Previously reported on five civilians sustained wounds as a result of the Ukrainian military shelling of the town of Shebenkino in the Russian Belgorod region. I have just received information that the town of Shebenkino is under fire. He stated civilian infrastructure facilities were damaged. According to preliminary information, five civilians were wounded. And uh, they would be rendered uh, with all the necessary medical aid, the official added. Gladkoff announced uh, yesterday that a high yellow level of terrorist threat had been extended in Russia's Belgorod region for two weeks until October the 22nd. A yellow terrorist threat level has been extended for two more weeks. It is an effect on the territory of the Belgorod region until October the 22nd. Belgorod region, uh, which borders Ukraine, declared a high terrorist threat on April the 11th, extending it for several weeks and several times. Since the special military operation was launched, the region's border area has been shelled by Ukrainians uh, multiple times. Uh, Kherson administration orders evacuation of the Nipar left bank. Now, the administration explained this demand by a tense situation on the front as well as by an increasing danger of massive shelling on the city and of terrorist attacks. In Kursan, the Kursan Regional Administration has urged local civilians to leave the city of Kursan across the Nipir River to its left bank due to the danger of shelling, according to the administration's statement posted on this Telegram channel on Saturday. All civilians of Kursan need to leave the city immediately, Kursan civilian residents, offices, and ministries of the civilian administration need to relocate to the left bank of the Nipah. Uh, that was according to the statement that was issued uh, by the 
authorities in the Kurdistan uh, region. The administration explained this demand by a tense situation on the front, as well as by an increasing danger of massive shelling of the city and of terrorist attacks. On Tuesday, acting Kurdistan region governor Vladimir Zaldo announced that civilians who live on the right bank of the Napier River in the Kurdistan region would be evacuated to its left bank due to the threat of flooding, which could be triggered uh, by a Ukrainian military strike on the Kakovka hydroelectric power plant. Zaldo warned that Ukraine was accumulating substantial forces near Nikolaev and uh, Krivoy Rog. According to the acting governor, the decision to relocate local residents was also due to the construction of massive defensive fortifications. According to the Russian Defense Ministry, on the course uh, of the reported operation, over 130 Ukrainian troops were killed, and two tanks, nine armored vehicles, and 13 cars were destroyed. Russian forces thwarted Ukrainian military attempt to brush, breach the defense line between the cities of Nikolaev and Krivoy Rog, eliminating over 130 Ukrainian troops. Defense Ministry spokesman Lieutenant General Igor Konashevkov uh, reported uh, earlier today. The enemy tried to breach the Nikolaev and the Krivoy Rog line uh, with the use of two tactic ballistic move moves in the direction of Pyoti Kati, uh, Sukhanovo, uh, Zabu Koka, uh, Ben Noye, and Bruce Skinskoye and Pavdino communities in the Kursan region. All attempted attacks were repelled, uh, he said. According to the Russian Defense Ministry, in the course of the reported operation, over 130 Ukrainian troops were killed. Two tanks, nine armored vehicles, and 13 cars were destroyed. And um, if you want to uh, follow uh, the uh, ongoing special military operation in uh, Ukraine, uh, all you have to do is read the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, the report delivered to the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China further pointed out the direction of the cause of the party and the country in the report. Striving in unity emerged as a very important phrase. Striving in unity is the only road the Chinese people can take to make historic achievements under the leadership of the party. When our country's development enters a period in which strategic opportunities, risk, and challenges coexist, and uncertain and unpredictable factors are increasing, it is especially necessary for us to take striving in unity as a source of strength to overcome our difficulties. In today's world, especially in the political area of the West, striving in unity has become scarce. In the UK, shortly after Liz Truss announced the end of the shortest tenure ever for a British Prime Minister, MPs from her Conservative Party began taking sides and betting on who will become the new leader. Some Western media claimed that plagued by international divisions, Truss's successor will face a long winter of discontent. In the United States, although some media outlets are laughing at the drama, their iron brothers across the ocean are embroiled in. It is just a case of the pot calling the kettle black. Surveys show that more than two-thirds of American adults are worried this year's midterm elections will further divide the United States. In an article titled, The U.S. is Heading Towards a Second Civil War, here it is. Here is how we avoid it. Time magazine said that because of the political differences, approximately 20 million Americans are ready to fight in a country with over 400 million guns. This is a common problem faced by many countries, including developed 
countries in Europe and the U.S., uh, partisan confrontation, social division, and internal political friction catalyzed by weak economic growth or stagnation are forming a dead end in a vicious circle. Dangerous extreme populism is also surging. All these have made striving and unity a vital form of national competitiveness as unity is becoming increasingly difficult to achieve. It has also become increasingly valuable. It can be said that different countries face their own challenges, but there's only one thing that all societies need, and that is striving in unity. Without unity, society will be torn apart by internal friction. Without striving, no matter how many family assets have been accumulated, they will be dissipated sooner or later. And if you want to read this uh, report and other reports uh, on the 20th Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, just log on to the Pan-African Newswire. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, in the Horn of Africa, um, the Tigray People's Liberation Front confirmed yesterday that they will send a negotiating team to take part in the African Union-led peace talks scheduled to start in South Africa next week. Our delegation will attend. Uh, Kendia Gebrehiwat of the Tigray External Affairs Office told the Asian France Press, the French press agency, when asked if they would join the direct talks slated to start uh, just on Monday, October 24th. Today's confirmation by Tigray authorities comes one day after the Ethiopian government on Thursday said that it would take part in the talks. The African Union Commission has informed us that the peace talks is set for October the 24th and to be held in South Africa. That's according to Redwan Hussein, National Security Advisor of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. He said this in a tweet yesterday. We have reconfirmed our commitment to participate. However, we are dismayed that some are bent on preempting the talks, spreading false allegations against defensive measures, he added. The African Union has not yet made an official announcement on the planned talks, which will be mediated by a team of African politicians. And uh, finally, uh, the current situation uh, in uh, the Republic of Sudan remains tense. Sudanese protesters uh, rallied in the streets of the capital of Khartoum ahead of a one-year anniversary of a coup uh, that derailed uh, Sudan's transition as the government and the country remains mired in deepening political and economic turmoil. Yesterday, uh, pro-democracy Sudanese groups commemorated the 58th anniversary of the first revolution that toppled military power in Sudan, uh, countries whose history is marked by coup d'etats and almost continuous rule uh, by military generals. Several thousand Sudanese marched on Friday, chanting no to military rule, Nearly a year after General Abdel Fattah al-Bahan's coup put an end to the democratic transition. In 2019, after months of mobilization in the streets, the crowd forced the army to put an end to 30 years of Omar al-Bashir's military Islamist dictatorship and to share power with civilians. On October 25, 2021, however, General Bahan broke uh, this alliance. Since then, every week, despite a repression that has left 117 uh, people confirmed dead, according to pro-democracy doctors. The Sudanese against the military power continue to hold protests. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire 
is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time period, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, uh, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to today's program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared with other potential listeners. All you do is copy and paste the links into emails and send those emails out to other potential listeners. The programs can also be shared by copying and pasting the links onto other blogs and websites, as well as sharing the links uh, over a social media network such as Facebook and Twitter. This is Abayomi Azizwe. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the sound of the band Love uh, from uh, their third album, uh, Forever Changes, the track entitled The Daily Planet, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit uh, on this Saturday, uh, October the 22nd, uh, 2022. Just this last past week, uh, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa invited uh, the President, uh, Ghali, of uh, the Sawari Arab Democratic Republic, uh, the Liberation uh, Government in Exile, uh, which uh, is fighting for full independence and genuine sovereignty for the people of the Western Sahara. Let's listen uh, to uh, the coverage uh, of uh, this historic visit uh, by uh, the SADR President to uh, the Republic of South Africa. absolutely quite a very jovial president Ramaphosa there as he's waiting for his counterpart from western sahara western sahara beg your pardon and of course uh, quite a lot that the two leaders will be looking at in terms of uh, fortifying the bilateral ties we know that south africa has been a dependable ally to this country located right in north africa and obviously uh, i do have uh, sophie mugwana here our international editor so sophie i mean we spoke earlier about the importance of these visits, that we know that the issue of development is right at the heart uh, between the two leaders as they'll be engaging on a plethora of issues, a number of issues facing the continent as well, issues of peace and security. Earlier on we saw that also the head of SENDF is around here, but just the significance of today. Well, as we pointed out, it's all about uh, reviving you know, the support and the struggle of uh, people of Western Sahara. And it is not the first time uh, the leader of Western Sahara has visited South Africa. Uh, All the time when he is in the country, his call is simple, continue to support our country. And uh, yes, there will be agreements here and there, but the main issue is a political discussion that is going to take place between the two presidents behind the scenes in terms of uh, political support that's needed at the continental level but also at the global level. Mm. Uh, and there you go, Sophie. We can see the motorcade uh, approaching uh, the Union buildings. Of course, uh, President Kali is uh, coming uh, to meet with his counterpart, uh, President Ramaphosa. And of course, you can see that uh, it's quite a very serious affair because uh, red carpet has been laid out during the course of the morning. We're going to have a 21-gun salute. It's specifically reserved for the heads of state, for the heads of government. Uh, you know, quite a very prestigious event where South Africa is honoring the leader of uh, Western Sahara. So uh, we're just going to see, I mean, it's going to come out of that car, uh, Sophie. Obviously, quite a very important moment at this rate. Yes, um, an important moment. And as you pointed out, you have the 21-gun salute. And that's a clear indication that South Africa is committed to strengthening the relations. Yeah. 
And of course, you have uh, the Air Force Band that is going to uh, sing both the uh, national anthems, the Western Sahara national anthem and the South African national anthem. And you can see that it is a serious affair. A very important area there, as you can see there, uh, where they are, uh, it reminds us of uh, the struggle of the women in South Africa. As they take those steps, uh, you know that uh, that uh, famous uh, women's march, and one can only think about women in Western Sahara who are also engaged in a similar struggle where they want uh, to be free and to be able to do what they want to do and carry on with the business of uh, their country. But for them, movement is still a problem. Very much so, Sophie, especially because we know that uh, within the AU you do have those member states who are sympathizing with the cause. And we know with South Africa, through the African Renaissance Fund, we have been such a very dependable ally in terms of the provision of humanitarian aid. They also do have a refugee crisis. You also have countries who are very sympathetic to Morocco. You can't ignore that. That is why it is still a problem uh, to really get a strong, united <coughs> support for Western Sahara. And we saw recently when the president of uh, Kenya, William Ruto, was inaugurated, uh, they issued a information on his official Twitter account where there was an announcement that uh, uh, they will not recognize Western Sahara but they were quick to correct that because that will be a violation of the African Union resolution and therefore you still have those challenges on the continent. Mm, very much so, Sophie. And of course, we can see the two leaders walking down and during the course, once they're done walking, there'll be that point and moment where they do greet the ministers. There's that introduction from the South African side and of course, with uh, the Western Sahara side as well, where they try to know each other, where they try to understand each other. But also, Sophie, looking at the portfolios that are here, I see once again the Minister of Arts and Culture, Sports and Recreation, the Minister in the Presidency, uh, the Minister responsible for women issues in the country, but of course the top general of the SNDF. So by all accounts, it's going to be an absolutely serious engagement. Yes, at the level where you really need this kind of, of resources at that level.
Well, of course, uh, that's the South African delegation. Quite a very strong delegation, so in terms of key priority areas in terms of South Africa's development and many other aspects. But of course, now it's the turn of President Khali to show South Africa who is here with him. And we do know that uh, a lot of areas of cooperation so far, South Africa does a full memorandum of understanding in so many areas around development, around humanitarian aid, and of course, uh, other issues really just to uplift this country that is uh, facing quite a number of challenges, Sophie. I think my only concern is that I don't see anyone uh, from South Africa's side 
who represent today economic cluster. And you know that at these challenging times, a country like this one definitely needs help in terms of uh, economic recovery, as we know that countries have been affected by COVID-19 and now the war in Ukraine. Yes, I see a powerful uh, representative or a delegation uh, on social issues like education, uh, social development, but I don't see economic cluster. At least with military, you spoke about the chief of uh, uh, the South African Defence Force and therefore the issues of security high on their agenda. Very much so, Sophie. And of course, uh, this brings uh, to an end uh, the welcome ceremony. So now it's the time for the two leaders to have those private talks. And of course, during the course of uh, the morning, then there will be an opportunity where they will be engaging us as the media. And we do know that in the country, there's quite a number of pertinent issues that the president is facing. Well, of course, uh, sir, that brings to an end, of course, uh, the welcome ceremony to President Khali here at uh, the Union Buildings, the Corridors of Power. Of course, now the two leaders will have an opportunity to engage in a variety of issues. But, uh, sir, you, you made quite a very pertinent issue around uh, the economic cluster. We know that uh, the issue of the economy is very vital in light of COVID-19, so many challenges with us note shedding and, and thereof the impact but uh, nonetheless um, quite a very strong delegation that you have seen in, in other key areas around education social development in terms of uh, the representation of uh, the cabinet ministers yes uh, i think the critical issue right now is political how do you get a support for the liberation of uh, the people of western sahara and i think that will be the main focus, how do you bring back the struggle of uh, the people of Western Sahara because uh, it is almost like a forgotten uh, struggle and this question, the Western Sahara question, must remain on the agenda of the AU. All right, so we, we're just going to hand it back now to Auckland Park in Johannesburg, to you Desiree. And uh, that was the uh, South African Broadcasting Corporation coverage of the arrival of uh, the Sawari Arab Democratic Republic, President Ghali, uh, to the Republic of South Africa, uh, a colony, uh, the Sawari Arab Democratic Republic of uh, the Kingdom of Morocco, who is acting as a proxy for the United States and other Western imperialist countries 
And uh, of course, uh, Spain, as well as the United States, has taken an even deeper uh, step back in regard uh, to the struggle of the Sahrawi people uh, for national independence and genuine sovereignty in North Africa. And of course, the African National Congress and the government uh, of South Africa, now headed by the African National Congress, has been a longtime ally of the SADR. Uh, their military wing, the Polisario Front, as well. Let's continue uh, with this coverage uh, of the visit of President Ghali of the Sarawi Arab Democratic Republic to uh, the Republic of South Africa. As the African Union works to attain the aspiration for a peaceful, secure, integrated, and prosperous Africa, we are reminded that the decolonization of Africa is incomplete. In fact, as the people who struggled for freedom, we do believe that our own freedom is not complete until the people of Western Sahara attain their own freedom and self-determination. The decolonization of Western Sahara is essential to the achievement of the Africa that we want. We need to intensify international pressure so that the long-delayed referendum on the self-determination of the people of Western Sahara is finally held. In this regard, we reiterate our call for both parties to resume direct negotiations in good faith and without preconditions to achieve a mutually acceptable political solution which will provide for the self-determination of the people of Western Sahara. We call for an end to human rights abuses against the Sahrawi people and for the extension of the mandate of the United Nations Mission for the Referendum in Western Sahara, MINURSO, to include the monitoring of human rights. I'm certain that our engagement today will contribute to a strengthening of the existing bilateral relationship and practical actions of solidarity between our two nations. Our two nations will continue to exchange views on how to intensify the diplomatic pressure in our efforts to achieve the speedy resolution of the question of Western Sahara. Your Excellency, I once again welcome you and your delegation to South Africa, your home away from home. So we thank you for being here. Your Excellency, 
Your Excellency President Sabera Mapota. Al-Hudur Al-Kareem. Esteemed attendance. Al-Rifaq Al-Silah Wafi Al-Nidal Wafi Al-Nidal. Our comrades in the struggle من أجل الحرية for freedom من أجل الكرامة for dignity السيدات والسادة ladies and gentlemen نحن ممتنون we are grateful بوجودنا اليوم معكم for being here with you your excellency president شعب جنوب إفريقيا and between two the people of South Africa and particularly the comrades from the African National Congress. We thank you for the uh, generous invitation and the warm hospitality. And this is not strange for you uh, your excellency president we are in fact we are really we are real comrades in struggle long struggle you have reached your destination but we are still on our way to complete the sovereignty of the South Sahrawi African Democrat, uh, Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic on its territorial soil after the evacuation of Moroccan uh, occupation force from our country and uh, the Sahrawi people to enjoy in accordance to international law to enjoy its right of self-determination and independence and building his state on on uh, on its land mr president this is a, a valuable opportunity to strengthen our bilateral relationships between the two countries in all sectors and an opportunity to reflect on most important issues uh, the African and international issues uh, of mutual uh, interest because, because we share the views in all issues and we have the same positions and stands and we seek same objectives to reach uh, an African continent with full sovereignty to an African continent secured and stabilized to an African continent where the constitutive act of the African Union is respected to an African continent that is cooperated and can reach its voice to the other party, one voice, the voice that defends the justice 
and cooperation. This is a valuable effort that you continue to, to extend and you champion everywhere. We are also the Sahrawi people have long suffered from the foreign colonization and then the African occupation and the expansion of, our, of, of a neighbor who rejected the international legitimacy and did not respect the international law and still continuing to do so. There is an uh, international uh, effort that did not uh, succeed to as, as the United Nations did not complete its, um, its task that it was due to finish in 1992 from last century. The, uh, the Moroc Moroccan authority uh, disrupted that process which prolonged the, the suffering of the Sahrawi people who, had, who would have been today free and, and enjoy full sovereignty on its national territory. Your Excellency President, without any doubt, the Sahrawi delegation here today and, uh, and on behalf of all um, Sahrawi people and Polisario Front, we salute you and we thank you for your unwavering stances, for your de defense for, um, of the right. You are amongst the African countries that defended the self-determination and, and the independence and the unity of the continent. From us, you, we thank you, we greatly thank you, and we are sure that this, is, this uh, position will continue until the Sahrawi people enjoy its freedom and, in, and independence. And this visit, hopefully, God's willing, will enable us to improve our relationships in all fields and, and will enable us to continue coordination. Uh, the, the, the external efforts and, and the consultation in other um, fields, social, political, cultural, sports, and other sectors. So once again, we thank you. And through you, we greet all the struggle icons of the ANC. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Your, Your Excellency. Thank you, President Ghali, Your Excellency. We will now give... Uh,
the opportunity for our friends in the media who are always uh, so busy and they want to go and rest a little bit while we continue working. They want to go and have their siesta, so we'll give them an opportunity to go and have their siesta and rest a little bit. It's a significant uh, visit uh, politically and economically and our political reporter Ntlantla Khatlani is standing by just to uh, summarize for us what just took place. Ntlantla, uh, what were your takeaways from this interaction? Well, a very good day indeed, Desri, coming to you right here from the Union Building where President Ramaphosa is meeting his counterpart uh, from Western, Western Sahara. As you heard, uh, you know, uh, the relations between the two countries, you know, dates back decades ago. Uh, the president of Western Sahara there, you know, saying that the journey, South Africa might have reached their journey, uh, but they are still um, on their journey for self-determination. You know that uh, South Africa and uh, Western Sahara, you know, um, share something in common. And one would just put it like this, that, you know, um, this country is one of the only countries that has been colonized by another country, but not only a country, an African uh, country, and South Africa being, you know, um, um, the last country uh, thus far to gain independence, who to talk to and to try and strengthen the relations you saw earlier when he arrived, you could see that the welcome was of a, a friend that, you know, uh, uh, South Africa could see that, you know, Western Sahara, you know, um, they really have something in common, a uh, welcome befitting a friend. We also saw, saw yesterday leading up to, to today, you know, ANC Youth League there, you know, marching to uh, the Moroccan embassy, you know, try to raise uh, you know, a voice of unfairness on behalf of Western Sahara and all this because of Morocco, you know, uh, not wanting to, you know, give um, Western Sahara uh, their independence. Uh, and this happens at the backdrop where, you know, also President Ramaphosa is uh, meeting his counterpart while uh, his country is also going through a lot. Load shedding is still a problem. We saw uh, yesterday the, the ministerial handbook has had to be revised, uh, you know, high level of unemployment. And also, you know, from his part, we know that they are gearing up, you know, for their elective conference in less than two months. Uh, in two years, there's going to be elections. So this uh, uh, relations between these two countries, like I already mentioned, you know, dates back decades ago. So who else to talk to than somebody who, you know, just got their independence last in the continent? Desiree? And of course, just in terms of... Uh uh, the important conversations that are going to take place today. Uh, which ones are uppermost in Kantla? I think one of the issues that probably they would be talking about as you know, in a couple of minutes, they'll be here to brief the media in terms of the MOUs that have been signed uh, would be, you know, amongst the development that has taken place. You know that this is not the first time that, you know, uh, Western Sahara president visits South Africa, you know, when we also know for a fact that South Africa has been, uh, you know, rallying behind them, showing them support. Three, count three countries, you know, um, uh, members of you know the AU, uh, but there seems to be a lot of issue with regards to one, you know, um, one uh, getting self-determination. You, you heard the president of Western Sahara there, you know, talking about the importance of them, you know, getting independence, and you know the country looks like it's not going to give up until they reach that destination, and. 
in future as you know uh, things probably get better then that's when you know the playing field will be fair to them to also you know uh, go deeper into you know how they can engage economically even cultural you know um, exchanges uh, but at the current moment you know their issue um, remains to be the occupation than fair occupation and unjust occupation of Morocco in some of their territories. Desiree? Mdantla Khatlani there just uh, talking to us about that engagement between President Cyril Ramaphosa and President Ibrahim Khali. Welcome back. And uh, that was a SABC report uh, on the official state visit of the Sarawi Arab Democratic Republic, uh, President Ibrahim Ghali. Uh, to the Republic of South Africa just this last past week. Uh, Both uh, the FADR and the African National Congress share a common history of struggle against uh, colonial occupation, against neocolonialism and Western imperialism. In fact, it is the United States and other Western imperialist countries that back Morocco in their occupation of uh, the Western Sahara. Let's listen to an extended report uh, on uh, the visit of uh, the Sarawi Arab Democratic Republic President Brahim Ghali to the Republic of South Africa just this last past week. The President of the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, Brahim Ghali, uh, will meet with President Cyril Ramaphosa in Pretoria later this morning. These are live uh, visuals from the Union buildings, and uh, we'll take you through to our colleague Kailisa Kumalo at some point in the show. Another headline, Zimbabwe get their T20 World Cup campaign in Australia off to a winning start. Hello once again and thanks for staying with us into the second hour of the agenda here on the SABC News Channel. My name is Desiree Chauke Mpotime and Triforce Antwiling. We alternate with sign language. Today hosting the Sahrawi Republic President Brahim Ghali in Pretoria, the Ambassador of the Sahrawi Republic Mohammed Yeslem Abisset Dech in South Africa says the visit is a clear indication that South Africa and his country have strong bonds at the time uh, as at a time where the Sahrawi people are fighting for freedom. For more on this, let's uh, bring in Kaya Kumalo who's been watching the story since this morning. A very good morning to you once again, Kaya. Uh, which activities or rather, what's the latest where you are? Well, absolutely, Desiree. You can see really just behind us that everything is in order as we're waiting with uh, great anticipation for President Khali to arrive here at the Union Buildings. Obviously, you know, whenever you speak to the government ministers, something that is very primary in this regard has to do with uh, the self-determination of the people of Western Sahara. You know that this is Africa's last remaining colony. And of course, uh, Desiree, we also do have our own international editor here, Sophie Mugwena. I'm just going to bring her into this conversation as we look into this critical issue. Sophie, every time you go to, for example, the ANC conference, there's always the question of Western Sahara. South Africa has always been supportive of their plight for freedom. Tell us about the significance of this visit by President Khali. Well, it's quite important because it will once again put uh, the struggle of the people of Western Sahara on the map. 
because clearly as we are doing now with the live coverage and many of our colleagues who are here, both uh, local and international uh, journalists, this story will be making headlines in different newsrooms today. And therefore you are bringing back and you are reminding the Africans on the continent and the international community that you still have a country on the continent that is being occupied by another African country, part of its territory, and therefore the struggle continues. And therefore it is important then for those who are responsible to remember that you still have this Sahrawi question. Institutions or the continental body, such as the African Union, the United Nations, you are again reminding them that you still have to resolve the issue of Western Sahara. Mm. And what does it mean? Because we go back to 2017 when Morocco was readmitted into the AU, there was a huge outcry, and South Africa once again was leading that voice. You know, in the Sadic region, Namibia as well, and among other countries. Now it's 2022, not much progress has been made in this regard. Let us remember that it is Morocco that took a decision to uh, suspend its participation within the African Union. It was not African Union saying don't participate, but the African Union that was launched in South Africa, the first chairperson of that uh, continental body after the transformation of the OAU, Tabombegi taking the helm, it was clear that South Africa was going to ensure that where there are challenges on the continent, challenges that are similar to what we experience, they have to be addressed. And therefore the issue of Saharawi was going to be alive and well. And therefore Morocco decided to pull out its readmission. Well, it is an African country and it is better when it is within the African Union so that member countries and leaders of the continent can engage Morocco to say what you are doing is wrong. And I think many countries on the continent have done just that, particularly the SADC region. The SADC region has been very firm in terms of uh, ensuring that uh, they do fight for the liberation of uh, the Sahrawi people. But you have countries on the continent that are almost like uh, owing Morocco, because Morocco is a very rich country, and therefore using its resources, it is able to influence certain decisions. And that is why when you go to the uh, Pan-African Parliament, you can see Morocco's influence. When we were at the AU uh, just before uh, COVID-19 in 2020, when I was there at the U AU present, everywhere you go, there was a, a branding of Morocco. And you can see that it has got an influence. It doesn't mean that Morocco is not an African country and therefore it will continue to fight uh, for its uh, uh, prominence within the uh, continent. But then leaders must always remind them that there's this outstanding matter. This is the only part of Africa that is still under occupation. Mm. And do you think it is an indictment on the African Union? Because you go back to the days of OAU, you look at the United Nations as well. All of them, they've tried, but 
the issue is just unresolved. And it's quite interesting, Sophie, because lately now we talk about the so-called annexation of Ukraine. You do have those who are saying we need also that strong condemnation to say that annexation of a territorial space of another country is absolutely wrong. But on Western Sahara, there's a great deal of silence. silence. You know, it speaks to who dictates the global agenda. Your powerful nations will always do that. You know that they are even ignoring the plight of the people of Palestine because there's no vast interest. You look at Sahrawi, a very poor country, and therefore they don't care. They don't have interest. They are not invested in that country. It's a poor country on the continent. And therefore, really, your, your, your influential countries within the G7, the G20, including some of the BRICS member countries, only South Africa, is still uh, consistent because of the experience and the history of South Africa. We know how difficult it is to be oppressed and therefore there's no way South Africa will not continue to talk about that occupation. Mm. And just Sophie, just to give you a sense of some of uh, the ministers that we're sporting, I'm seeing, of course, uh, the Minister of Social Development, uh, that's, of course, uh, Lindy Wazulu, uh, alongside Basic Education Minister Angie Motsecha. And I'm just looking at all these, you know, primary issues, you know, education, social development. These are very important issues, especially when you look at the context of Western Sahara, a country that's facing quite a number of social challenges and also the women minister also being around as well. Yes, social issues. This is a poor country. You therefore have to address their social challenges and poverty. You also have to address the issue of education, the issue of women. We know that women in that part of the continent are really, really suffering. Uh, three years ago, uh, our former colleague Saraki Mani visited the country. And when she came back, she said to me, Sophie, I've been to many African countries. I've seen challenges on the continent, but this one, it does hit very hard. And therefore, women in particular, and therefore you expect uh, agreements in terms of what is South Africa going to do to help the women in that part of the continent. You have social uh, development minister. How do we assist them? You have uh, uh, other ministries of education. How do you ensure that you support them? Because we know that education is very key to the emancipation of any nation. Mm. And maybe just before we bring it back to the studio, Sophie, obviously we see, we see that the top diplomat, Dr. Pando, is out of the country, but we, we spoke to the Deputy Minister of International Relations, and once again speaking about the issue of development, but also saying this is really at the heart of South Africa's foreign policy when it comes to pan-Africanism, sympathizing with the, you know, the countries that are still oppressed, the countries that are still yearning to see themselves, you know, being uplifted from the shackles of poverty. Yes, that is, you know, South Africa's foreign policy is anchored around peace, security, stability, comfort and prosperity. And therefore, that is why South Africa will always 
uh, extend its hand to those countries. Uh, we didn't shy away to be involved in the CAR. We didn't shy away to be involved in the DRC. Uh, we, we, we are not uh, looking and folding our arms as a country on a situation like this one. And therefore, this is what the policy of South Africa is all about. You look at what's happening in Ukraine. The, the people are saying, why are we not firm in terms of what's happening? That's the issue. Peace and stability at all times and freedom at all times. Absolutely, Sophie. Of course, that's our international editor. So we're all waiting here with great anticipation for the two leaders uh, to meet, and then there'll be a welcome ceremony. Then the two leaders, President Ramaphosa and President Khali, will have an opportunity to interact and talk about an array of issues. And obviously, uh, quite a very important issue as well will have to be around economic development. We know that's quite important, as most countries are still trying to recover from uh, the ashes of COVID-19, so to speak. So definitely do stay on SABC News for very comprehensive coverage. Welcome back. And uh, that was the SABC report uh, on the state visit of the Sarawi Arab Democratic Republic uh, President uh, Brahim Ghali to the Republic of South Africa uh, and meetings uh, with the President Cyril Ramaphosa and uh, the fact of the matter is, as well, uh, that um, the situation in Ukraine uh, is a proxy war uh, waged uh, by the United States against uh, the Russian Federation. It is an effort to expand the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and it diverges uh, from uh, the struggle for self-determination and national independence and genuine sovereignty in the Western Sahara. And South Africa is correct in uh, calling for a diplomatic resolution uh, to the situation in Ukraine, and they do not acquaint uh, the struggle for self-determination and national independence in the Western Sahara, in North Africa, or in any other um, geopolitical region uh, such as Palestine, uh, which is being occupied at the aegis of imperialism, uh, and equate that uh, with uh, the current uh, situation in Ukraine. And uh, let's listen uh, to this report uh, on uh, the demonstrations outside the Kingdom of Morocco Embassy in the Republic of South Africa in support of the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. Now, as South Africa prepares for hosting the Sahrawi Republic president, activists and alliance partners who are sympathetic to the cause of the Sahrawi people are marching to the Moroccan embassy in Pretoria. Let's get more on this with SABC News International Editor Sophie Mugwena. Please give us the latest from that march. Well, we are now at the Embassy of Morocco where they are now going to present a memorandum. Earlier on, all those who are supporting the Sahrawi Republic called on President Ramaphosa to ensure that South Africa does continue to ensure that uh, the representatives of the country in different parts of the world they do talk about the plight of the Sahrawi people. With me, I have the ANC Subcommittee Chair of International Relations, Melindiwe Zulu, who is also the minister. We know her very well. Minister, minister, the importance of this gathering here. The importance is the continued solidarity with the peoples of 
Sahrawi. It is important for us as the African National Congress and the Alliance partners to continue to show that colonialism must end in the African continent. This uh, Sahrawi is the last uh, 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 republic which we can say that still remains with some parts of it being occupied by Morocco. So the African National Congress, the Alliance Partners, the Youth League, the Women's League decided to come to the embassy to deliver a memorandum to that effect. But it is further to really reaffirm our call to the international community for ensuring that there is implementation of resolutions that are taken by the United Nations in relation to the peoples of Sahrawi. Minister, the march comes a day before President Ramaphosa is going to hold talks with his counterpart from uh, the Republic of Sahrawi. On behalf of the ANC, what do you expect in terms of the discussions between the two leaders? Well, these are bilateral engagements which are beyond just issues of politics. It is about also ensuring that we continue the solidarity and in supporting them, hence his visit to South Africa. I'm saying it's beyond the politics because we need to talk about the economics, we need to talk about the livelihood of the people of Sahrawi. So it's important that this visit that is taking place tomorrow be supported because we have in, we are in solidarity, but also the bilateral relations that we have always has to be strengthened. And so from an African National Congress point of view and also from an alliance point of view, we welcome the visit and also there will be also a meeting of the alliance partners with the president uh, during the time that he is visiting South Africa. Thank you, Minister. Maybe let me walk this side with uh, Ronewa. I see someone who has championed the struggle of people of Sahrawi. I can see she's busy on the phone trying to take pictures. You've fought so much and you have continuously uh, been consistent in terms of the fight for the people of Sahrawi. You were at the UN recently during the UN General Assembly. What was your message to world leaders? It cannot be that we continue an illegal occupation on our continent. It can no longer be acceptable that self-determination, which is an inalienable right, is deprived from the people of Western Sahara. The Sahrawi people deserve to be free. Those in the refugee camps who are living outside of their own country and those who are living in the occupied territory deserve to now return home. It can no longer be that South Africa stands idle. We cannot only make statements that are beautiful in writing. We cannot only have state visits, but we're not actioning the platforms that we have available to us. Morocco must be sanctioned and we must fight for self-determination of the Sahrawi people at all costs. This is not something that is tradable. Well, there you have it. Uh, they came here to present a memorandum calling on the international community to continue to support the people of Sahrawi Republic. Sophie Mukwena live there from Pretoria giving us an update on that march to the embassy. That was uh, a report uh, on uh, the demonstration in the Republic of South Africa in solidarity with the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, whose president, uh, uh, Brahim Ghali, uh, visited uh, 
his counterpart, uh, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. Uh, they discussed the ongoing solidarity efforts aimed at bringing about the total independence, sovereignty, and self-determination of the people of the Western Sahara and their provisional government, the Sarawi Arab Democratic Republic. We're going to take a break, and uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the voice of Marsha Hunt uh, with the tune entitled Black Flower. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, October 22nd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And our final segment uh, deals uh, with a briefing uh, provided uh, by the Africa desk of the World Health Organization. And, uh, of course, uh, the... COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the outbreak of the Ebola virus disease, and other uh, health challenges across the African continent is being monitored on a daily basis uh, by uh, the Africa desk of the World Health Organization in conjunction with the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And we're going to bring you a a recent briefing uh, that took place uh, just uh, two days ago. Uh, in Congo, Hello, Brazzaville. everyone, and welcome. Yeah, I'm Rosemary Bubutu, Communications Officer at WHO, and welcome to WHO Africa Briefing. Today, we turn our attention back to COVID-19 for an update on how vaccinations are progressing in Africa. We have gathered specialists to give you the latest developments. First, some housekeeping. Uh, you can choose the language you would like to hear for the, tra- for the press conference by turning to the globe on the bottom right and selecting your language. Bienvenue à tous. Uh, tout d'abord, concernant la traduction, vous pouvez choisir le langage dans lequel vous souhaitez écouter cette conférence de presse en cliquant sur le globe en bas à droite de votre écran et en sélectionnant votre langage. Joining us from Brazzaville in the Republic of Congo is Dr. Machidiso Moeti, WHO Regional Director for Africa. I now hand over to Dr. Moeti. Thank you very much. And um, good day, bonjour, and welcome to all the journalists who are joining us for this press conference. Today, we'll focus on the ongoing efforts to boost COVID-19 vaccine coverage and uptake in African countries alongside the response to multiple other outbreaks that are challenging the continent's health responders. I'm really pleased to be joined by the Honorable Minister of Health of Liberia, Dr. Belamida Jala, which recently, of Liberia, whose country recently became the third African country to achieve 70% primary COVID-19 vaccine coverage of his population. A huge congratulations to you and your country minister and a warm welcome. I'm also honored to be joined by Ms. Aurelia Nguyen, the special advisor to Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. Ms. Nguyen was instrumental. Ms. Nguyen was instrumental in setting up the COVAX facility through which 580 million or so COVID-19 vaccine doses have been provided to 53 African countries by international partners and many lessons learned about global solidarity at the same time. A very warm welcome, Ms. Nguyen. Newly returned from the 2022 World Health Summit in Berlin, I was gratified to see the high priority the global health community is affording to the critical issues of pandemic preparedness, and of resuming progress towards universal health coverage. The significant health advances being made by African countries deserve merit. However, 
with 11 serious disease outbreaks currently being addressed in 47 member states, and I think about 120 others less serious being addressed as well. Alongside reduced COVID-19 vigilance, there is serious cause for concern and additional effort. The COVID-19 vaccine rollout is unfortunately stagnating. The monthly total number of doses being delivered into the arms of African people dropped by more than half between July and September. It is positive that we're making modest progress towards vaccinating high-risk population groups. Currently, one in every three people aged over 50 have completed the primary series together with 40% of healthcare workers. But when overall African vaccination rates are nearly two-thirds lower than the global average, it's clear that there is still much work to be done. Critically, high vaccination coverage in populations reduces the spread of the virus and helps prevent new variants from emerging. Liberia has now reached the 70% coverage target, along with Mauritius and Seychelles, so we know that success and progress are possible. Rwanda is on target to join them very soon. We've also seen a significant decrease in the number of countries in which fewer than 10% of people have completed the primary series from 26 at the end of last year to only five now. It's important to note that vaccine supply is no longer problematic. Countries are now receiving about double the number of doses per 100 people than at the end of last year. I'd like to sincerely thank the COVAX partnership for turning around a tragically inequitable situation and together with the African Union's African Vaccine Acquisition Trust, or AVAT, assuring the steady pipeline. Unfortunately, as vaccines have helped avert serious COVID-19 illness, hospitalization, and death, people are less fearful and so also less willing to get vaccinated. Delivery strategies and systems are also being adjusted and strengthened. WHO in Africa has embarked on a raft of measures to support member states. These include assisting countries to integrate COVID-19 vaccines into other planned mass vaccination campaigns, to track vaccination among priority groups, and to carry out high-level advocacy to boost the uptake. Meanwhile, other disease outbreaks, to which I referred earlier, are also prompting a shift in priorities in affected countries, negatively impacting the efforts to ramp up COVID-19 vaccination rates. Today marks one month since the latest Ebola outbreak in Uganda was declared. With 64 confirmed cases, three of whom traveled to the capital Kampala, and 25 confirmed deaths, the situation on the ground is rapidly evolving. The Minister of Health of Uganda has shown remarkable resilience and effectiveness in constantly fine-tuning the response to what is a challenging situation. The health authorities have rapidly strengthened surveillance, identifying nearly 2,000 contacts. A better understanding of the chains of transmission is helping those on the ground respond more effectively. WHO, the Africa Centers for Disease Control, and other partners are marshalling response capacities across the region to support Uganda and six neighboring countries. A 100 million US dollar six-month regional readiness and response plan is being finalized with an alert management system now fully activated in Kampala for better case de- detection. As WHO, we've dispersed $5 million for the response from our contingency fund for emergencies and are providing technical and operational support 
while helping with the national coordination of partners. We've deployed 43 technical officers to support the response at national and district levels along infection prevention and control supplies for managing cases. We've also sent Ebola kits to set up emergency temporary hospitals. As always, community engagement is critical to building trust, cooperation, and understanding that such measures are there to protect and to save lives. Turning now to polio, it was extremely encouraging to see global leaders this week confirm 2.6 billion US dollars in funding towards the Global Polio Eradication Initiative's 2022 to 2026 strategy to end the threat, more than half the $4.6 billion target. Ahead of World Polio Day on Monday, let me stress that this global solidarity and top-level political commitment is essential to finally eradicating both wild poliovirus type 1 and the variant type 2 poliovirus. A total of 500 million doses of vaccine against the variant type 2 poliovirus have been delivered globally with 21 African countries administering 95% of these. And among these countries, 80% have seen no further transmission of the virus. So together with the polio partners, we're also closely monitoring vaccination rounds, targeting about 7.5 million children in Malawi and Mozambique to ensure that no child is left behind. Vaccination campaigns are continuing in Tanzania, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. We're also setting up an emergency operations center in Mozambique, which will provide a central location from which to coordinate data collection and the response to what is another serious public health threat. Going forward, we're working to maintain the response to COVID-19 and these other outbreaks, while also supporting the resumption of routine health services that have been disrupted by the pandemic. So again, Thank you very much for having joined us today. A very warm welcome to my fellow panelists, and I look forward to our conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Moeti. Now, let's turn to, your, to the other panelists. Uh, this goes to Liberia's Honorable Minister of Health, Dr. Wilhelmina Jala. Can you tell us how the country reached such high vaccination coverage? Good morning to all, to our moderator, to Dr. Moeti and uh, the journalists out there. Uh, a pleasant good morning and greetings from Liberia. Uh, it hasn't been an easy road, but determination uh, can end up very well. Uh, we received our first vaccine in April of 2021. Uh, we had to delay uh, uh, vaccination uh, until June, because there was that scare about uh, blood clots from AstraZeneca. So therefore, uh, we delayed until we had enough evidence from uh, the global population on, uh, on the safety of this vaccine. So the first uh, vaccination started in June uh, of 2021, and uh, everything was going fairly well. We didn't have or the kind of support from the population that we needed. But it wasn't until uh, the Delta variant came about in uh, early July and August, we had a high increase in uh, vaccination coverage, especially among the 
or, or educated population that was still debating whether or not to take the vaccine. But later on, with support from our partners, we began to use the traditional areas uh, and that uh, uh, could help us with the vaccination and some non-traditional areas. So we use hospitals, clinics, health centers, and then we use uh, uh, non-traditional site through the GSA or, or General Service Agency, which was not a traditional site. And we had a lot of vaccinators go there because she was giving water, she was giving food, and she was treating people so nicely. So a lot of the people went there to take the vaccines from there. But the, 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 the factor that helped us to increase the vaccination coverage was when we decided to decentralize uh, how we were going to do uh, the support. So uh, our partners, WHO, uh, USAID, and other supporting partners uh, decided that we have 15 counties. So each county should write a plan and tell us how they were going to reach uh, the, the target uh, population in the area. So each county wrote their cost plan and we supported them directly to implement what they have written. And because of that, each county was able to uh, use the original technique of going from house to house, uh, doing community engagement, speaking to the chief, trying to convince people that this vaccine was very important for their safety and for the safety of Liberia. And so uh, uh, from door to door, our vaccinators went to the elderly, went to the families, went all around, making sure that people were getting their vaccine the vaccine. But most importantly, the vaccine cards. People wanted their cards. So with all cards, you know, people were not coming up for the vaccines. So we worked along with the global uh, uh, supporters to be able to put our vaccine cards online. So it was an electronic vaccine card. Then we went to uh, 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 in the communities and in the hard to reach area, we use generators and we use or photocopy machine to make sure that even in the hard to reach areas, people receive their vaccine cards. Uh, and at this current time, we have vaccinated six and seventy six percent of the population, which is about three point five million people that are fully vaccinated, and four point three million people have taken at least one dose. We did not change vaccines. We stuck. After we use AstraZeneca, we stuck with Pfizer and J&J, so as not to confuse people. So we have people who wanted to take J&J and people who wanted to take uh, Pfizer. But in order for your strategy to work, you need strong leadership. You need partnership. You need decentralization. You need to make a demand generation from the population all the way uh, in every community, get civil society, get the churches, get the religious leader, get uh, uh, the marketeers. We had to go everywhere to make sure that people understood the importance of the vaccine and that they should get vaccinated. And most importantly, you need support because to reach all of those areas, to support the vaccinators on time and, and their supervisors, you need the 
proper support. And you can't forget, uh, or now we're trying to integrate it into routine uh, vaccine care. But we took that opportunity to ask about family planning, to ask about TB, to ask about HIV, to ask other questions while our vaccinators were in the field. So we used that opportunity to get other information, how people were faring as they came out for the vaccines. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Jana. Uh, now over to Ms. Aurelia Nguyen from Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. What is Gavi doing to ensure that the continent continues to access COVID-19 uh, vaccines? Uh, thank you so much, uh, Rosemary, and good morning, good afternoon to colleagues and friends in the media, and my, my thanks to Dr. Moeti and WHO Afro for being able to join you today. Uh, thank you to the Honorable Minister, uh, Dr. Jala, for, sh for sharing your insights, really remarkable work uh, being done in Liberia. Um, I want to start my remarks by, first of all, celebrating the progress on the continent. Um, you've heard, I think, some good highlights of that. Um, and also to say that overall, at the beginning of this year, there were 28 countries that are covered by the COVAX Advanced Market Commitment that were below 10% vaccination coverage for COVID-19. And that meant millions were still at risk in terms of severe disease, death, and infections, particularly the high-risk uh, populations of healthcare workers and elderly. And since the beginning of the year, 22 countries have moved past this milestone. Uh, we've got Burkina Faso and Malawi that have become the latest countries to do so. We have Mali that is set to cross uh, the milestone of more than 10% coverage in the coming weeks. And in this group, many countries have more than doubled their coverage rates, some much higher than that, we've heard. Uh, um, so across the continent, Côte d'Ivoire, Ethiopia, Tanzania, Zambia, all reaching 30% or higher, really an amazing accomplishment that I really want to uh, give recognition to, um, especially given all the other really vital routine immunization work that's happening uh, in parallel. And really, this progress is possible with the incredible uh, efforts of the healthcare workers, the communities, civil society, the partners, and, and the governments. And COVAX has really been there every step of the way since February 2020, when we, uh, 21, when we shipped our, our first doses uh, to the African continent, we've now supplied 670 million doses. Um, we've provided tailored support with our partners to increase the, tech, the, the uptake with the technical assistance, the cold chain equipment, the training, the support, um, and very importantly, the awareness campaigns. Um, so we will continue to collaborate uh, there is still more work to be done. Um, we just heard from Dr. Moeti, um, it, it feels like to, to, to some COVID-19 is no longer a, a threat, um, but this pandemic is actually not over. We still have more than 250,000 people on the continent that have lost their lives so far, um, and, and we need to make sure that uh, we keep uh, the, any increases as low as possible. We're focusing at COVAX on helping countries uh, vaccinate as many people as possible. We have enough doses to go around. We're especially determined to make sure the vulnerable groups are protected. Um, and so elderly healthcare workers, primary series, but also boosters. And this is the only way that we're going to be able to ensure that lives are saved and that the health systems hold strong. If we have 
a, a new variant or surge, uh, which is uh, still very much something that 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 could happen. Um, and we're we're doing this not just, of course, because it saves lives, not just because it protects health systems, but also because I think we really recognize. Um, that there are all very many pressing health challenges at the moment. And we hear this consistently, that um, there are many things that we need to be looking at. Um, we've just heard the outbreaks of polio, there's uh, outbreaks of measles, cholera, all of those are a sign that um, the impact of the pandemic on the routine immunization system and all the other essential health services um, is uh, uh, is important and, and, and has been um, uh, and, and makes the threat of other outbreaks uh, all the more uh, real. We have the outbreak of the Ebola Sudan species in, in Uganda, as has uh, also been highlighted. Um, so we really look to, to governments, to communities, to continue to, to lead the way. We've seen the, and we've just heard uh, from the Honorable Minister the, some of the amazing innovations, the community-led, the civil society-led work that that's has helped with increasing awareness and, and, and vaccine demand. Um, Gavi has made uh, 25 million additional funding available specifically to CSOs uh, to make sure that these efforts are um, supported. So we know that progress is possible. We've seen it. Um, we And we really want to make sure that we carry on with integrating COVID-19 uh, vaccines with other health priorities for example, in Tanzania, integrating campaigns between COVID-19 and polio vaccination efforts to really make sure that we push on these priorities together. Um, the Gavi Alliance uh, has been focused also on the recovery of the routine systems, uh, and uh, this is the foundation of our work, strengthening African health systems, working uh, with uh, our partners, including the African Union, on plans to, to enable also, for the long run, sustainable manufacturing capacity on the continent. Finally, we're going to continue to work with our COVAX partners to make sure our country's needs are met in the face of uh, existing and new challenges. Um, this week, Gavi has signed an agreement with Moderna for up to 100 million doses of variant-containing vaccine in 2023 so that um, all countries, and most importantly, lower-income countries, have an equal choice to use uh, the vaccines that are available uh, globally um, in their booster programs where that's appropriate. So with that, thank you so much for your time. I really look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Grant, for all this information. Uh, now that we've heard from all our speakers, we will open the floor for journalists to ask uh, questions. We have additional experts from WHO on hand to respond to some of the questions if needed. They are uh, Dr. Mojirom Dutabe, Polio Rapid Response Team Coordinator, Dr. Jamal Ahmed, Polio Coordinator, Dr. Fiona Atuebwe, Regional Vaccines Introduction Officer, Dr. Tierno Balde, Regional COVID-19 Incident Manager, and Dr. Patrick Otim, WHO Africa's Incident Manager for uh, the Ebola outbreak uh, in Uganda. So we would like to recall that this is a media briefing, so we ask all the people in attendance to note that only journalist questions will be answered. Uh, dear colleagues of the press, please use the 
question and answer function on the Zoom application to ask your questions. Please also note that even if you want to ask a question live by raising your hand, you need to take the time to introduce yourself and your media outlet in the Q&A function in the Zoom to be given the floor. So uh, now let's take our first uh, question. Um, so this uh, this one is from Mike of the Medical Media uh, Services, uh, and this one goes uh, to Fiona. Um, how many African countries have so far been able to vaccinate more than half of their eligible population against COVID-19? Um, so Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Rosemary. So we have only eight countries that have made it beyond 50% coverage so far for the COVID-19 vaccination, and these are Tunisia, Botswana, Cabo Verde, Morocco, Rwanda, the country we are celebrating today for crossing over to 70%, Liberia, Seychelles, and Mauritius. So, so far we only have eight countries that have vaccinated more than 50% of their total population. Over to you, Rosemary. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Fiona. Uh, now I have a question for uh, Dr. Zella. Um, Honorable Minister, can you perhaps add to this as to what was the magic bullet that allowed uh, Liberia to vaccinate more than half of their population? The magic bullet was decentralization making sure each county run their own vaccination campaign and the participation of all the healthcare workers and the vaccinators and the support from all of the partners, USAID, WHO, and the other partners, and making sure that the vaccines were available. That's key to uh, success. Thank you. Honorable Minister, uh, now over to Ms. Nguyen. Please, can you tell us uh, what uh, do you think is driving up uh, vaccination rates? Uh, thank you very much. I, I, I think um, there's been, I, I think, a very, very strong engagement uh, from countries, and um, we see that uh, really, as there is so much uh, population movement as well, I think there's a recognition that um, there has to be high immunity. But also, I think having um, African countries increasing their coverage with homegrown tailored approaches, a little bit like the ones that we've heard in Liberia, has really helped drive up vaccination rates. We've seen great tactics, for example, strategically addressing false news and rumors around COVID-19 vaccination using local community sensitization programs. We've seen in Niger women-driven mobilization campaigns in rural areas, door-to-door -door vaccination. Uh, again, in Niger, vaccination teams um, that are deployed around nomadic cor corridors. Uh, an example from Djibouti, using alternative transport to get vaccines to really hard uh, uh, remote uh, areas of the country using donkeys and camels. Um, uh, vaccination sites uh, that have apps in Nigeria to find your closest vaccination site. Uh, South Sudan and Somalia 
There's been a, a very strong mobilization with religious and community leaders, mobile vaccination sites, using radio stations. So we see many, many uh, examples of this type of um, uh, innovation and very much uh, sort of locally adapted uh, situations that I think have helped. Uh, move that. And, and as I alluded to a little bit previously before, as we look forward now, making sure that we think about integration is a really important theme. Uh, so uh, the example I gave of Tanzania of COVID-19 and routine immunization for polio, I think this is going to help um, keep driving the increases. It's also going to help ensure that it's not one vaccination program to the detriment of the other. As we're seeing, it's really the whole routine immunization that needs to move together. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we have received a question from uh, Paul Adepoju of The Lancet. Uh, I, I will first go to uh, Dr. Moeti and uh, Ms. Nguyen for answers. How far is the current state of COVID vaccination from the initial projection? regarding the rollout, and what threat does the attention to other outbreaks pose to a COVID vaccination rollout? Moreover, what is the situation of COVID vaccination in Eritrea, and what can we infer regarding the need for vaccination, even though the country is one, is the only one not immunizing its people? So, uh, Dr. Mueti. Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, I, I think it's clear that we are far from the original targets that have been set as far as coverage with COVID-19 vaccination in the African region is concerned. At a certain point in time, early this year, we were saying we'd need to ramp up seven times uh, the rate at which vaccination was happening in the African region. So I, I think we're acknowledging looking at the number of countries that have reached um, the 70% coverage of their population, and even those that have accelerated coverage of the most vulnerable groups, that there is clearly a need to speed up and to do better, faster. I think what the minister outlined as the drivers of their progress, the rapid progress in, um, in Liberia, are some of the things that really need to be promoted and that we are working on promoting, adapting to the local context in different countries. We are supporting countries to carry out micro-planning at the sub-national and the local level so that we can understand locally what is needed, what needs to be done, who is going to do it, what are the resources needed, and what's the strategy that's, that's needed. I think if that is combined with um, using tools to support people acquiring um, their, their connection with the vaccination system, still carrying out some campaigns. I agree very much with the need now to explore opportunities for integrating this, these with other services, ensuring that the integration helps us to reach the highest um, priority groups that we'd like to reach and finding ways to learn how to identify these groups. So, so even as we integrate, we make sure that we're reaching the most vulnerable people first. I've seen in some countries where there is a high HIV prevalence and well-established programs by communities living with HIV, for example, that these offer opportunities to integrate uh, COVID-19 vaccination services to one of the groups that are vulnerable. We need to learn more about how elderly people are have, uh, having access to primary care in Africa, how services for chronic diseases that make people vulnerable are being organized. These, we know, do not have distinct services. So it's very much, I think, integrating at the primary care level 
looking at where um, people are managing diabetes, hypertension, non-communicable diseases. In a way, I believe this will help us to accelerate more structured attention to these hitherto rather neglected diseases, which have shown themselves to be so important. So I think it's very much a matter of innovation and learning. We're working to catch up is, is the bottom line in relation to our initial targets um, and, and even what we had projected needed to happen at the start of, of the year. Um, of course, the threat of other outbreaks, we need to see how to do all this at the same time. That That is part of the work of resuming other services and where there are opportunities to do this together, particularly in the outbreaks that need vaccination as an intervention, then we need to be exploring these uh, to the degree that, that it's possible. With regard to, to Eritrea, a country that has um, not started vaccinating its population, we continue to advocate with the Eritrean authorities on the need to initiate this vaccination of their population working with the UN partners at the country level, the UN country team, and through the WHO. And we anticipate that um, now that vaccines are no longer a problem, now that the country can address their concern about equity in uh, using the vaccine to cover their whole population, that really is no longer a problem. And it's now a matter of helping to plan how to carry out this rollout in that country as well. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Moeti, uh, Ms. Vien, can you add a few uh, words? Do you have a few things to say? To... Uh, thank you so much. And I think uh, Dr. Moeti has uh, been uh, giving very, very uh, helpful information. So maybe just a few thoughts to complement in terms of, um, I mean, at the moment, the coverage in healthcare workers um, in the, the countries who report in the WHO for reason is 53% in terms of those who have completed their primary series and it's 31% of older adults um, in terms of those who have completed their primary series as well. And I think that's really the first priority. Um, and it's been so, I think, from the start, and it still is today in terms of making sure that, yes, the, 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 the pandemic has evolved over time, but I think that has to be remain um, a very important uh, focus. And actually, I mean, there is some good news here in the sense of in um, lower income countries, generally, we're seeing that the coverage of healthcare workers is actually among the highest in the world. So I think really just to take a moment, I think to celebrate, I think the remarkable results here in terms of protection of healthcare workers, recognizing there is still, uh, I think, some uh, way to go. But it, what we're seeing is, is the coverage in the elderly um, uh, is, uh, is way below um, uh, average. And, and so uh, really making sure that uh, we develop the programs, as Dr. Moretti was highlighting, um, and particularly uh, not, not just staying at primary series, but also uh, enrolling booster programs, uh, I think is uh, going to be uh, really a, a, an important um, uh, piece uh, for us to, to focus. I think it's, it's really where we're going to save the most lives, um, and it's also going to be the, the, the part that helps protect the health systems overall as we respond to other threats. Thank you. Please, uh, Honorable um, Minister Jala, can you also tell us a few words uh, about how, how Liberia is uh, addressing the, the possible the threat, if any, uh, that the attention to other outbreaks are posing to uh, COVID vaccination rollout? Uh, because of a little bit of neglect of the routine uh, services, 
uh, measles outbreak. So we are now, uh, you know, using the same vaccinators to make sure that they uh, vaccinate on measles. Even during the outbreak, while we were vaccinating, we were able to introduce the polio or, or vaccines again, and then we were able to introduce typhoid vaccines. So as outbreaks uh, or other things come about, you know, while uh, COVID vaccine is ruled, being rolled out, we are using the opportunity to make sure that we are not uh, forgetting about other outbreaks that could possibly threaten at least the young kids. Thank you, Dr. Zella. Next question uh, is going to uh, Dr. Moeti. Uh, this question is from James Masaya Chege at Reuters in Johannesburg. Uh, experts and health workers talk of a major undercount of monkeypox cases in Africa uh, because contact tracing and testing is often not carried out. First, how big is the undercount? And second, uh, do you factor that in when considering funding and supplies for countries in the region uh, coping with monkeypox? And third, uh, does WHO think the statistics they use or published are undercounts? Uh, Dr. Patrick Otim, also, uh, you can help out or uh, complete uh, Dr. Moiti's answer. Dr. Moiti? Okay, um, thank you very much for that question. Uh, so first, is that undercounting? Uh, I think yes, no doubt. But I do believe that um, with the, the, the type of um, awareness raising, training in on the case definition, how to recognize a case of monkeypox, even if it was not possible to confirm with a test, it's been possible to expand the, 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 if you like, the, the correct identification of cases and to reduce the undercounting. I remember at some point where in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, for example, the clinical recognition of cases was very many times higher than the confirmation through testing. And that was because of all the awareness raising, training of healthcare workers, making sure that they, they understand, they know the case definition and they can recognize what is probably a case for lack of access to testing supplies, it wasn't possible to confirm these. I believe this has progressively reduced. We did acquire some testing supplies in some other countries. Certainly the level of sensitivity of, of the healthcare workers has increased, but, but there is no doubt as happened in many outbreaks that a certain proportion of the cases will not be counted. Um, when we plan for uh, mobilizing resources, we use both the confirmed cases and also the probable cases. And the fact that part of what you do in, in, in managing an outbreak is to go looking for cases. So you are likely to find more cases and therefore have to intervene. So we don't raise money just, raise, just based on the number of cases that we have actually counted. So that is somewhat factored in. And uh, it's very important, I believe, that we continue to particularly at the most peripheral level among the healthcare workers, raise the index of suspicion, meaning their understanding of what is probably a case so that these investigations and confirmations can be done and the response can address um, the entire risk in a country. So strengthening the surveillance systems right down to the primary care level, to the most peripheral level, is one of the most important 
um, investments that can be made. And then, of course, as I've said before, ensuring that communities also understand. People, when they see themselves or their neighbors or family members, what resembles the illness that has been described, also contact the health services. This is the way in which we can detect all the cases. So my colleague might, what might like to, to provide additional information in, in response to this question. Dr. Otim, please. Thank you very much, Rosemary, and, and thanks, Dr. Moeti, for uh, ably addressing most of the elements of this question. I think I'll just add one component. In terms of the transmission in Africa, when you look at it, we have 13 countries across in the continent that have reported cases. Out of this 13 countries, we know that there are countries that have previously, uh, prior to 2022, reported monkeypox cases. Now, when you look at the new countries that uh, reported cases this year, there is active case search and case-based investigation of all suspected and reported cases going on. So we are quite sure definitely that in those countries that all the cases that have been identified are being counted. And most of these countries do not have many cases, with the exception of Ghana, that has had uh, over 100 cases confirmed. And Ghana has significantly scaled up their surveillance and have been doing uh, investigation and and, and, uh, testing for all suspected cases that are reported. The second category of countries then are those countries that have had cases previously and uh, the, the biggest um, um, most affected being the DRC that uh, Dr. Moeke has mentioned and in DRC then there have been a, a significant shift in terms of the surveillance approach that was being implemented. We need to know that DRC has been dealing with the problem of monkeypox for a very long time and it has been one of the priority disease conditions, and they have been using a syndromic surveillance approach to uh, report and, and investigate cases. And as the transmission increased across the world, they, there was a change in their strategy to try and increase the identification of cases and testing. And I would agree that a country the size of DRC, there are definitely challenges in terms of how much testing we can be able to do and access to, to facilities, but there has been significant improvement in DRC, in Nigeria, and we are currently working with these countries. We had uh, missions to Ghana and Nigeria in the last two weeks, and we are having another mission of, of, of uh, experts uh, to uh, DRC and the Central African Republic, looking holistically at the monkeypox response and trying to see how better we can improve in terms of both the investigation and, and confirmation of cases, but also in terms of the management and planning uh, for potential use of, of, of vaccines when they become available. Thank you. Thank you uh, very much, Dr. Otim. Uh, now we have a question for uh, from um, Sade Oguntola from uh, Nigerian Tribune. Uh, this one uh, will go over to Dr. Jamal and Ms. Nguyen. Uh, the wild polio virus is coming back strong uh, without control. In the next five years, do you see this taking us back to the period before such countries as uh, Nigeria were certified free of polio. Dr. Jamal Ahmed. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I'm just turning on my camera. Uh, no, uh, just first to remind, I think, uh, everybody that uh, the virus that we are seeing in uh, Mozambique and Malawi 
was imported from Pakistan. And before that, for 30 years, and close to 30 years, there has not been any wild polio virus in this country, which means that we have had many years of many generations growing up with, uh, with nothing to worry about wild polio virus and paralysis and families growing, growing up in peace. That's, uh, that also highlights you know, heavily the work that we've done over the years. This new outbreak came, uh, 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 was detected in February, and the response efforts have been ongoing since then. More than five, five rounds have so far been implemented, and we do not foresee you know, the, the, this getting out of hand in that geography, and we will, pro we will knock it out hopefully by, by, by the beginning of next year. We should be back to uh, zero wild polio in that sub-region. Malawi has only reported one case. Um, Zambique has so far reported seven cases. Uh, we, we, I think, uh, what do you call it? the countries have been at the forefront in pushing forward um, and uh, with the, the eradication effort. There has been a lot of boost in terms of investments in surveillance, in local response capacity. Um, in uh, the, so we anticipate that we will find every virus that is circulating in there, and we will hopefully. Uh, deliver on uh, zero wild polio um, uh, in Southern Africa. So the, in, in terms of the greater risk, the reality is as long as we have wild polio somewhere in the world, there's always the risk of reimportation and then uh, the reestablishment of circulation. And that's why the whole outbreak response processes are to, you know, to make sure that we detect such kinds of importations if they happen and respond as aggressively as possible so that those chains of transmission do not get established within within the African region. So that is the process, and hopefully we will address it. I'll stop it here and maybe hand it back to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, uh, Doctor. So, uh, uh, Minister, the Honorable Minister uh, Jalad from Liberia had to excuse herself as she had to attend another uh, meeting, but uh, we thank you. Thank her very much for her presence and all the inputs that uh, she was able to provide. Uh, now, uh, the next question will go over. Uh, uh, please, uh, Ms. Nguyen, if you wanted to ask, add anything uh, on the, the polio, uh, polio, um, polio question, polio virus coming back. So, um, indeed, I mean, I think it is uh, in very unfortunate in terms of the, the cases that we're seeing of circulating vaccine-derived polio virus type 2. Um, it, it's rare. I think these challenges are something that uh, remain in, in countries. I think maybe also to put it in the context um, that over the last three decades, the polio cases have reduced by 99.9% um, with the commitment of um, the polio program, the communities, the governments, the donors, the, the, the partners. So um, I think we have to make sure um, that we very much stay focused in doing high quality vaccination campaigns and on having very strong surveillance um, to make sure that we don't uh, start to see some backsliding. And um, I think these cases demonstrate that um, there is indeed a, a continued threat to children everywhere. Um, it is uh, something we're very much treating uh, continually as a public health emergency. So um, with the combination of a need for continued investment, and that's in the primary healthcare systems, in the immunization systems, and making sure that we really see where there are pockets of uh, vulnerable populations that may have not been protected, um, that's really going to be um, the, the key in terms of uh, not having 
uh, a further resurgence, and it's very much the focus of the work that uh, Gavi, as one of the partners uh, of the Polio Partnership, uh, is doing. Thank you. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Ms. Nguyen. Uh, Dr. Moeti, can you add a few words on the, yes. the polio? Yes, I, I just wanted to, to, to actually say that um, I think to say that while poliovirus is coming back strong and out of control, just needs some contextualization. And, and, and my colleague said, said clearly that these were imported cases in southern African countries where we have not seen wild poliovirus for a long time, and there's been a very strong response. Secondly, of course, it, um, that and, and the, the vaccine-derived polio cases we are seeing just point to the need and the importance of routine vaccination against children and really finding those children that have not been vaccinated, the so-called zero-dose children, and focusing on making sure that these children are vaccinated. That's, that's a very important part of the strategy, as, as well as continuing routine immunization for everybody else. So there's a, a very strong response to this wild poliovirus um, outbreak that is being seen now, and we are very hopeful that it will be contained. It's important, I agree, but I think... Um, I, I, I think we need to put it in its proper perspective. It's something where there's, there's a very strong mobilization of partners. Um, I do not yet believe that it's out of control. But the fact that we're seeing also um, poliovirus being detected in systems in uh, uh, wealthy countries, Western countries, means that we need to continue with this uh, surveillance with effort and with vaccinating children so that whatever is going on, they are not vulnerable then to being infected and to being paralyzed, which is what we want to stop. Welcome back. And that was a briefing uh, from the Africa desk of uh, the World Health Organization, uh, which, of course, uh, has been monitoring uh, not only uh, the spread of COVID-19, the vaccinations in response to COVID-19, but also other uh, diseases. Uh, which, of course, uh, are quite important uh, in regard uh, to uh, the public health status of the African continent. And that's going to conclude uh, our program for today. And, of course, uh, you've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And, uh, of course, uh, we're here uh, every week uh, bringing you some of the most uh, pressing and uh, burning issues of the day. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll be closing out with the music of the legendary Art Tatum, his masterpieces. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Mm-hmm.